This is episode one of Raising Wildlings. In this episode, we're talking about the importance of play and how we need to stop dismissing play as trivial. We're talking about how to create environments where children learn best. We break down some of the misconceptions around self-directed learning, in particular university entry and future success. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Raising Wildlings podcast. We're your hosts, Nikki and Vicky. You'll work us out eventually and we are so excited to be here. We've been talking about hosting our own podcast for over two years now. We have about half a dozen lists scribbled in notebooks of our dream guests and we've been brainstorming names on and off for years but we've never sat down and made the time to get it started. And so I guess that's one of the silver linings of our forest school programs closing during COVID is that we've been able to use this time to do all the back-end work required to finally launch. And other than running forest school programs, chatting to like-minded people about play, how children learn, parenting, and creating freedom within our lives is our next favourite thing to do and we're finally doing it. And we're starting off with a bang. Yes, we are. When we were creating our dream list, you know, the 10th list of who we would love to interview, Peter Gray's name was the first person on our list. Both of us love his book, Free to Learn, and it's the first book we recommend to people who ask us about alternative education or the importance of play or how children learn. Actually, it was a book that convinced my husband that we should homeschool and how we ended up unschooling. So Peter was the first person we emailed and the first person to respond. So we think we should probably retire after this episode because we're not sure it's going to always be this easy. So you might actually be asking yourself, who is Peter Gray? Well, he's a research professor at Boston College and his work focuses on the role of play in human evolution and development. He is the author of the book Free to Learn, but he also authors a regular blog on Psychology Today. And on top of that, he's the president of the Alliance of Self-Directed Education. Before we get started, we want to thank Peter for coming on our very first episode as the first guest. We're sure you'll agree that this speaks absolute volumes of his passion for children's rights and self-directed education. And just a note on his altruism, because like us, Peter has no idea how many people this first episode will reach, but he's taken the gamble that if just one person takes something away from this episode, then it's worth it. And so on that note, we also want to thank you for tuning in with us for the first time today. We can't thank you enough for your belief in us and your continued support. So we really hope you enjoy this adventure as much as we do. And don't forget to subscribe so that you're notified when the next episode drops. But now let's make a little Wildlings history with episode one of Raising Wildlings. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. And welcome to the conversation about play and self-directed education. Thank you. I'm honoured to be to be your first guest. Okay, so to start us off, do you think you could take us through your journey and how you became a professor of play? Yes, well, 
my research on play and self-directed education, how children are designed to learn through play and exploration, is um, has been going on for actually many years now, for about 30 years. But uh, it wasn't my original research. I used to be more of a neuroscientist. I was studying the uptake of certain hormones in the brains of rats and mice and doing that kind of laboratory work. And, but uh, many, many years ago, actually, my son was rebelling in school. And um, his rebellion reached such a point that it was very clear that he was not going to be able to continue going to any kind of a traditional school. He simply was clear in his own mind that school was not a good place for him and that he was not going to follow the rules of school, which didn't make any sense to him. And um, he made that so clear that at at some point we decided we had to be on his side instead of um, fighting him, him about it. And then the question became, well, what would we do? So we weren't set up for homeschooling. Homeschooling was hardly a thing at that time anyway. We we looked at alternatives, and it turned out there was uh, about a couple miles from our home a radically alternative school called the Sudbury Valley School, where children from age four on through eighteen or nineteen, typical school age range, um, free to uh, play and explore and follow their own interests and do whatever they wish as long as they don't violate the school rules, and the school rules are all made democratically. And my son, who was nine years old at the time, thought, well, that is exactly what a school should be. <laughs> and <laughs> and, um, and I was intrigued. I was certainly open to the idea, and his mother was too. But we had some questions about it, as most parents would. <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it, clearly this he would be happier there than in the public school. But um, is he is this going to have a negative effect on his future? Is he going to, for example, if he decided that he wanted to go into some kind of a career or some kind of a life that required going to college, would he be able to go to college after? Mm-hmm this kind of schooling where he's not taking any courses, he's not taking any tasks, he's not doing any of the things that we think of as school. This is the most common question we get asked. That's the most common question, question and, and it's a very legitimate question. Um, mm. And it was my primary question. And, and is it, um, you know, I, I was concerned, so, so are all the graduates starving artists living in their parents' basements, you know? <laughs> or... You know, do any of them go into jobs that can actually make a living? And so I um, wanted, so I began by kind of asking about the graduates somewhat informally. And then being a scientist, I wasn't satisfied (laughs) just with a few uh, selected anecdotal stories. I thought, well, I we need to have a systematic study of the graduates of this school. The, the school at that time was already old enough that it had a close to a hundred graduates, uh, mm-hmm. some of whom had done all of their all of what would be K through twelve schooling elsewhere mm-hmm. uh, there, and never been to another school, and they were out there in the real world as uh, uh, young adults, and so. 
I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a study of these graduates? And I tried to interest, this was not my field, I tried to interest uh, people in the Department of Education at Boston College, where I was a professor, mm-hmm. and couldn't find anybody there. I tried, there was a whole group of people at Harvard who ostensibly were interested in democratic schools. And I thought, wow, they should really be interested in this and doing such a study, but I couldn't interest them in doing the study. So I finally decided if a study is going to be done, I guess I'm going to have to do it. And so I, with the help of a part-time staff member at the school, David Chanoff, um, I did this study of graduates, managed with his help to locate almost all of the graduates of the school and got almost all of them to respond. And what I found really turned my career around. These graduates, so here's here are people who are doing growing up doing nothing that looks like school. It really doesn't look at all like school. You go into this place any time of day and you see almost nothing that looks like school. You will see people reading, but they're reading whatever they want to read. You know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you will see people um, doing all kinds of interesting things indoors and outdoors. You see very yeah. lively people, but they're not doing what looks like school. And we have this notion um, in our society that you just have to grow up doing school or somehow you're going to be lost in this world. And and here's people who grew up not doing anything that looked like school. And yet those who wanted to go on to college or university were going on. (laughs) They didn't seem to have Mm -hmm. any problem doing it. They were not all starving artists. In fact, they didn't find any (laughs) starving artists. I found a number of artists, but amazingly, they were making a living at it. You know, they were pretty (laughs) successful. Um, There were a disproportionate number, no surprise, a disproportionate number of musicians and and artists of various types. I think that people, you know, when they're really free to explore, they a a larger percentage gravitate to Mm -hmm. that than um, than who are going to school. But nevertheless, Mm. there were people in every career. There were scientists, there were social workers, there were people who had started businesses, there were people in human services, there were people in every... It's in, I could not find any realm of activity that we value as a society for which there were not at least some graduates of the school Mm. who were pursuing that realm. In my mind, this was a a very interesting observation. I couldn't understand why the whole world wasn't just fascinated by this question, but yet people would find every excuse to dismiss it. Like, oh, these are just special kids. You know, these are, there's something special about these kids. So I tried to address that. Is there something special about these kids? And well, you know, I suppose the one special thing is that they all, in one way or another, hated school. But that was- <laughs> I don't know that that's that special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and some of them had been labeled as learning disorders. Some of them had been failing. Some of them had been labeled as very bright and they were bored in school, you know, but it was the whole range. And some of them were there just because who came right from the beginning because their parents intellectually believed in this kind of education right from the beginning. But a lot of them were there because, like my son, they were in one way or another problem children in school. But then the siblings of the problem children who were not problem children also came to the school. And I couldn't find any particular, you know, it just seemed like no matter how why people came to the school, they all seemed to do 
pretty well. The, this was the observation that turned my career around. And I, you know, I continued to do the brain research for a while, but gradually faded that out in favor of doing more and more research uh, on how children learn when they're in charge of, of their own education. So that will bring us to finding play. I really love your definition of play. Could you describe that for us? You know, I came to the conclusion that so what children are doing at Sudbury Valley is a lot of it is play. <laughs> it looks like play. And uh, and I came to the conclusion that the two primary educative drives uh, for children mm. are playfulness, the drive to play, mm. and curiosity, the drive to figure out what your world is about, to understand things that you come into contact with. And so... I've been interested in both of those drives, and but particularly interested in play. So you asked how I define play. So I define play as an activity that has these five characteristics, and I'll list the characteristics. Mm -hmm. The first characteristic is that it's freely chosen and self-directed. So right off, you can see one of the great, or maybe more than one, of the reasons why play is so important for children's development. It's how children learn to choose what to do. It's how they learn to take initiative. Nobody's doing it for them. Nobody's setting it up for them. Little League, you know, adult-directed sports is not play. We might call it play, but it's in my, in my vocabulary, it's not play because it's not self-chosen and self-directed. Somebody else is setting it up for you. I love that. I remember you saying about playing baseball with playing it as part of a sport is completely different to going to the lot next door and creating rules as you go. And I loved how you explained that. That really connected with me. Exactly. So children are learning how in play, unlike in, in doing things where somebody else is directing them, are learning how to direct themselves. They're learning how to negotiate with their peers. They're learning how to solve their own problems. They're learning how to create the rules and vary the rules so that they can all have fun. So mm -hmm. in that self-directed game of baseball where the, the kids would go out to the vacant lot and there'd be a bunch of other kids there and you'd get up a game. Mm -hmm. You'd choose sides, you'd, the, you'd create the field, you would ha you'd have to create your own rules because you're not playing on a standard. There's no such thing as a standard um, <laughs> ball field. You know, you're no. playing on a vacant lot, there's a busy street on one side of the lot, there's windows over there, you know, you have to say, anybody who bats it towards those windows, automatic out, and so on and so forth. And you negotiate, there's no umpire calling balls and strikes. So you have to no. negotiate how you're going to manage that. So what you are learning in that game is all kinds of skills that are way more important than baseball. I mean, you know, Everybody is going to have to, in life, have to make use of the kinds of skills that you learn when you're creating your own baseball game. How to negotiate, yeah. how to compromise, how to create mean? rules, how to solve your own problems. So, mm. that, so that's the first characteristic of play. And yes. I also want to note that because play is freely chosen, it's also, you're also free to quit. And mm. it's the fact that children can quit that is also such a powerful learning mm. experience. So think of that, that game of baseball. For that game to go on, 
you've got to keep all the players who are at that field happy enough to stay at the game. Otherwise, they'll quit. Yeah. Well, there's a handicapping. It's an equalizer. You've got to keep even the little kids happy because if you lose all the little kids, you've got a few big kids, but it's not enough for a game anymore, right? So you've got to pitch softly to them. You've got to also meet the needs of everybody. So you, you learn really that having fun and making sure that everybody is having fun, whether they're on your team or on the other team, that's more important than winning. I mean, in the end, nobody really cares who wins in this kind of game. There's no trophy. There's nobody cheering you on. There's none of that. Everybody's trying their hardest, and everybody you know, cheers wildly when their team makes us to score. But in the end, nobody really cares who won. Probably you've lost track of the track of the score and even if you have kept track of the score by tomorrow you don't remember the score and it doesn't matter because tomorrow it's going to be a whole new teams right i mean you know it's a pseudo competitive that's the other thing that adults do when adults get involved with children they turn it into competition and competition Mm -hmm. becomes the motive more so than fun So that's the first characteristic of play. The second characteristic of play is that it is intrinsically motivated. You're you're mm-hmm. doing it just because you want to do it, not because there are because you think you're getting something mm-hmm. from it. Like great. You're, doing, you're not doing it for gold stars or praise mm-hmm. from your parents or teachers. You're not doing it for grades. You're not mm-hmm. doing it to improve mm-hmm. your resume. <laughs> you know, you're not doing it for any of these extrinsic motives. Now, there may be, and I argue there are positive consequences of it, but that's not yeah. why, that's not consciously why the child is doing it. Mm-hmm. And so it's fascinating to me that natural selection created in children a drive to do something just for fun. And it turns out that engaging in that drive just for fun has all kinds of positive consequences, which I can summarize, mm-hmm. including some that I've already described. One, of, And I think that it's that aspect of it that makes adults often feel like play is a waste of time. Why would you be doing something for which there's no reward. I and mean, we're so hooked on the idea that there's that everything we do, we should be doing in order to get something, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the way our economy works. Mm-hmm. We work for money and so on and so forth. That's yeah. the way our, our typical schools work in order to get grades and honors. You know, we're doing everything for extrinsic rewards. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you're doing something just for fun, oh, you know, it almost, mm. it, it almost sounds sinful, right? I mean, you're not. <laughs> one of the things that I've found in my research, in my first study of the graduates of the Sudbury Valley School, the school my son went to, and, and subsequent studies of grown people who were self-directed in their education growing up, is that many of them, in fact, I've estimated based on the research that I've done that about for half of such students, they are in careers that are direct extensions of of things that they discovered in play, that they Mm -hmm. found that they loved to do when they were children playing. And they became, um, you could almost say, obsessed with these activities and engaged in Mm. lots and lots of play and became really good at them. 
And then as they began to get into their teenage years and began to think about how they wanted to make a living, they sort of said, well, how can I make a living doing what I really love to do? And my, my research suggests that for about half of them, there's a very straight connection between what they mm. discovered they love to do and, you know, and they were doing it just because they love to do it, not because as children they were thinking, oh, how am I going to train mm-hmm. for a career? But this was yeah. after the fact. And I think it's interesting too, like a lot of parents now or some parents will say, you can't make a living out of that. Yeah. You know, like that's too trivial. Who, who makes the money out of being creative? I think that yeah. a lot of people have said that to their kids and, and now it's sort of shifting the other way saying, well, this is a really good way of making money. Yeah. What is yeah. the definition of success if it's not being happy with what you're doing? That, that's exactly right. And, and what's interesting is I, the graduates of self-directed education seem to, be, seem to not have great difficulty finding employment mm-hmm. compared to graduates of regular schools. And I think it's because they know what they want and they've become good at what they want to do. And they also have been creative and self-directed their whole lives. So they take responsibility. But this question, you can't make a living at that. You know, let, here's a, let me just give, give some examples. So there was one, uh, one grown unschooler. So this is a kid. This is somebody who, uh, who was homeschooled, but homeschooled by the method is called unschooling, where there's no curriculum, no tests. It's like Sudbury Valley, but not at a school. And homeschooling is a little bit of a misnomer. It's not really just at home. You have this vision sometimes mm-hmm. that homeschooling means that the children are cooped up at home and it's only they're only learning from their parents. But successful homeschooling, and especially unschooling, yeah. where you're not giving a curriculum, really requires that the children be connected to this to the society in a variety of ways. And that means that they're growing up in families that are so connected. So here's just give one example. Here's a kid who did nothing but YouTube stuff. You know, I mean, this is what so many kids do, right? But he had lots of time to do YouTube stuff because he wasn't going to school. And he became really, really mm. good at it. Uh, so he was making these films. And at some point he learned, I think he was maybe 16 at the time, he learned that um, a major movie company was making a film in his city. And again, because he had free time, he wasn't going to school, he volunteered to help out. He said, I've had some experience and he volunteered to help out at the production end. And producer found his help so valuable and found he knew so much and was so motivated and so loved the work that the producer invited him, and maybe this didn't occur until he was 18, invited him to go to Hollywood to work as an assistant. (laughs) And uh, he's on his way to his dream job of being a movie producer himself. So Wow. I think it's that that flexibility, isn't it? And that flexibility in time and with us with unschooling, we call it never at home school. Yeah. I'll give you just one more example. I really love this example. So this is a this is an unschooler who um, he had actually three passionate interests as a child. One was nature. He loved to go out hiking and backpacking in the woods. And another was flying. He he got into to uh, hang gliding at uh, I guess age fourteen or fifteen. And a third was photography. And he became very good at photography and actually began to earn some money at photography while I was still a teenager and doing some nature photography. So at the time I did the study of grown unschoolers, he was in his early 20s making a good living 
as an aerial nature photographer. So, you know, he combined and he, I looked at his website and just beautiful photographs. So he combined his interest in flying with his interest in nature, with his interest in photography. So we, we live in a world where there are so many different ways of making a living that almost anything that you really love to do, if you're good enough at doing, and maybe it requires a little bit of luck also, you can find a way to make a living doing it. Absolutely. So that was the second characteristic of play, that, it, that it's mm. uh, intrinsically motivated. The third characteristic of play is the one that maybe is most surprising to people when you first hear it, and that is that all play has rules. All play has structure. There's no such thing as uh, unstructured play. And I think what most people mean when they use the word unstructured play <laughs> is that it's not structured by some adult. Adults. But mm. but if it's structured by an adult, I've already said it's not play. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all play is structured and all play is structured by the players themselves. Mm-hmm. And so play is how children learn to structure their own activities. Play is how children learn to follow rules. Mm. Play is how children learn to inhibit their whims. So it seems contrary to the way most people think. Play is how children acquire self-discipline. And so if think about it, so every instance of play that's really play, it's never random. Mm. It's always, you're always doing something where you've got in mind what you're doing. And that means a structure. There's lots of room for creativity and and uh, imagination within that structure, but the play is still bounded by rules. There are certain things you can't do. You would be out of bounds mm. if you were to do that. The example I like to give to illustrate this is the kind of play that might, to many people, seem like the least structured play. And that would be, imagine a couple of boys play fighting. They're, you know, they're swinging sticks at one another. They're chasing one another around. They're just <laughs> acting wild, it looks like, absolutely wild. Sounds like my voice. <laughs> but there are rules mm-hmm. to what they're doing. No actually mm-hmm. hitting the other person with the stick, right? You can hit the other person's mm-hmm. stick, yeah. but not the person. Or if you're wrestling or pushing one another, no mm-hmm. kicking, no biting, no no hitting hard. If you knock the other mm-hmm. person down, if you're going to knock them down, knock them down on something soft. If you're the bigger, mm-hmm. if you're the bigger and stronger <laughs> of the two, you have to self handicap. Now these these rules don't generally have to be stated, but if either of the boys violates one of the rules, the other one will clearly state it. Hey, mm-hmm. you know, that really hurt. <laughs> and again, will yeah. invoke the freedom to quit. I'm out of here if you keep playing like that, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so, so what looks like it's wild is actually an exercise in restraint. So you're yeah, going, yeah. you're behaving, mm-hmm. you're engaged in this extraordinarily vigorous activity, but at the same time, you have to control yourself in ways mm. that mean it's such that you're not actually hurting the other person. So that's, an, but I could go through any example, any kind of play, and point out mm. the structure that's involved. The great developmental psychologist, the great Russian developmental psychologist, yeah. Lev Vygotsky, way back in the 1920s, um, his view mm. was that the primary thing that children learn in play is how to control themselves, how to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it's interesting with, uh, I've just been reading through a lot of the curriculum documents uh, for a project that we've been doing, and there is this underlying, you know, 
know, they want children to be able to have these skills, but they don't actually allow for the appropriate activities for it to occur naturally. How do you structure something Mm. for children to learn this? Like, it's like that paradox, you know. Absolute paradox. (laughs) We want them to have these skills, but we don't actually want them to engage in the things that will allow them to develop that. Exactly. I mean, I think we always Mm. have, from our, especially educators, but society in general, we have this view that if we want children to have some skill, that means we adults have to figure out some program for them to develop that skill. Yeah. Instead of say, if we like somehow we know better children to have a certain skill, what we have to do is leave them alone. <laughs> yes. Stop yeah. intervening. Yeah. Let them let them do what children are designed to do. There's a good evolutionary reason yes. why children children do the things that they want to do. It, natural selection yeah. created this drive for children to behave in the way that children behave because that's how children learn all these skills that are so important to learn. None of the, the skills I'm talking about are not, they can't be taught by adults. <laughs> adults that's can nice. interfere with them, but mm. adults can't teach them. We've got to get over the notion that all the important things that children learn are things that we adults can teach them. And we have to understand that the the most important skills that children uh, need to learn cannot be taught. (laughs) They Mm. can only only be Mm, learned by allowing children to to engage as children naturally wish to do in free play and exploration. I think if parents get nothing else out of this entire podcast, then that last little section. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important. And, I, and it is, it's that awareness from a community level of understanding that, not just from an education perspective, because if more parents have this understanding of what children actually need, then it will be, it will filter through to right. institutions and the educational facilities that are spending a lot of time with children. Well, it won't happen until parents demand it. So we need to help parents know and learn about this so thank right. you again exactly. <laughs> for being on here and helping us spread that message the fourth characteristic of play is which is in some sense the complement to the characteristic that has rules is that although play has rules it always has room for creativity and imagination so mm-hmm. that it's not so fully structured that the child is just following out a routine, that there's always creativity involved in play. So, mm-hmm. And there's always imagination. Play, in, in play, the child, that they are leaving the real world for this fantasy world. They're in a different world than the real world. They're in an imaginary world, mm-hmm. in an imaginary world that is kind of a practice world for the real world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because it's an imaginary mm-hmm. world, you can set up whatever conditions you want. So you can set up conditions that might exist in the real mm. world at some point for you, but they don't exist in your real world right now. <laughs> so you can practice for those opportunities by you know, imagining that you are a mommy, <laughs> imagining that, mm. that yeah. you're a firefighter, imagining that you are a superhero who's going out and rescuing people, and practicing what it would be like to be yes. that kind of a person. And you are also engaging in what 
is really the highest order of human thinking, which is hypothetical thinking. So even little mm-hmm. children, when they're playing in their imaginative ways, are engaging in what philosophers call hypothetical deductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. In, as, as you may know, the developmental psychologist Jean Piaget, who's so famous, uh, used to argue that children are not capable of hypothetical deductive reasoning until they're about 11 or 12 or 13 years old and reach what he called the stage mm-hmm. of formal operational reasoning. But he was wrong. <laughs> it's very clear that little children can engage in such <laughs> reasoning when they're playing, and they do it all the time when they're playing. They, do, they don't do it in response to the kinds of questions that Piaget asked, which are, which are kind of like the way mm. a teacher would ask the questions to a student. But they do it in play, and in play, they're practicing the ability to use that, that kind of reasoning. So imagine three, four, and five-year-olds mm. playing you know, an imaginary game. So they're imagining that there's a troll under the bridge, right? They've made a bridge of out of the chairs or the table is a bridge in the living room. And they're imagining that there's a troll under the bridge. And they say to, well, oh, there's a troll under the bridge. And the other one says, well, I better not go under the bridge. Well, that's hypothetical deductive reasoning. A troll under the bridge, what's the logical conclusion from that? Better not go under the bridge. <laughs> so, so that's, so children are engaging in this highest order of thinking. This is this is uniquely human way of thinking. As far as we know, no other animal is capable of thinking about things that aren't actually present, imagining that something is there, and then imagining what the consequences of that would be. And again, I could go on. All forms of play involve, to some degree, imagination, and all forms of play involve creativity. Every move is a creative move in any kind of play that you're... Children are, are practicing the ability for imagination and logical thinking that comes mm-hmm. from imagination and they're also in always practicing being creative yeah i think also creativity has been morphed into something that becomes also quite competitive or also critiqued a lot instead of it can be very vulnerable to be creative having to tap into that emotional side of things as well to allow people to feel vulnerable well and, and that that again is where this other aspect of play comes in play in play children can are creative and can feel comfortable being creative because nobody's judging them. Because if somebody's mm-hmm. judging them, it's no longer play. Um, there's actually a lot of research on creativity, and it's not re- it's not considered under the re- rubric of play, but I think it should be. So there's a lot of research of this sort. Um, mm. um, researcher named Teresa Amabila, who uh, is famous for this research in the United States, and she would bring people into the study and you know say and ask them to do some creative thing. In some cases, they ask them to write a poem. In some cases, to uh, make a collage or to draw a picture and um, and then she would have these whatever these products evaluated for creativity by a panel of judges who would independently assess them for creativity now I'm not sure how there are various ways of defining creativity and it's sort of hard to define what makes something creative but apparently people mm. reliably recognize it because judges judging it independently are very consistent in their responses to what is creative so this is how she assesses the creativity 
activity. And then in the experiments she does, she'll have various conditions. So in one condition, the people doing this creative mm. thing, the subjects in the experiment, are just told, you know, this is kind of a study of creativity. Uh, we're not, don't attach your name to it. This is, there are not going to be any consequences to this. Nobody's going to even know who produced what. Is just going to go into a general pool, and and that so that's sort of what I might call the playful way mm. of doing it. You're not you're not do, you're, there's no chance of any reward yeah. from it. You're not getting any feedback. Nobody's judging you about it. Nobody even knows you did it, right? So that's that's one condition. Another yeah. condition. Other conditions go something like so. This is a contest, right? So here's your competitive. Yeah. This is a contest. Yeah. We're we're going to judge these, and whoever produces the most creative poem or collage or whatever it is, um, mm. wins the prize. The end result is no matter what study she does, no matter whether it's with children or adults, the most creative products are done by those in the anonymous mm. condition for which there's no competition going on. There's nothing encouraging them to try to do their best because it's going to be judged. There's no, it's the play condition. And yeah. to me, that's pretty obvious why that's true. It's because you're not stressed about it. And to be creative, you have to feel free to let your mind roam. Mm. As soon as you begin to try to think mm. about how it's being evaluated, that constricts your mind <laughs> into a more mm. narrow channel. And you're not able to think right. out of the box in in really interesting mm -hmm. ways. So th that's the fourth characteristic. Just uh, the the fifth mm -hmm. characteristic, just to be brief, is really kind of a consequence of the other characteristics, and it relates to something that I've just mm -hmm. been describing. And that is that the that the mental state of play is a state in which you are not highly stressed. There may be a certain degree of stress because you're trying hard. You want to you want to do your best. And some kinds of play you're deliberately stressing yourself to some degree. So risky play, a, a little girl climbing a tree as high as she can is deliberately putting herself into a little bit of a state of fear. But as soon as it becomes too much, she can come down. The, the great mm. thing about play is you're always free to quit. If you're playing, in some sense, what that little girl is doing is mm -hmm. playing with her fear. How much fear can I tolerate? Mm. But other than that, other than, than your self-induced kind of stress, it's not stressful. It's not stressful because it's not evaluated, because there's mm. no trophies on the line. Nobody cares if you win or lose. And so you're not stressed about it. And that allows you mm. to do things that you're other, otherwise would be afraid to do. And it also, mm. this playful state of mind is one in which you're fully engaged in the task, but you're not overly stressed. Your mind is very active. You can't be passive in play because as I said, you have to be following the rules of play. You have to keep them in mind. You have to be paying attention to what you're doing in play. There's no such thing as being a passive player. You are always, your mind is always active in play. You're always creating something. You're always thinking in play, but you are not overly stressed. Now, it turns mm -hmm. out that that state of mind that is highly active but not stressed is the state of mind that researchers have found is the ideal state for learning anything new and also for any kind of creative mm -hmm. activity, as, as we've just been talking about. There's lots of research on that. Most of the research isn't talked about under the rubric of play. It's talked about under 
Yeah, they use such terms as flow. So, for mm-hmm. example, the state of flow is the mental state that I've yeah. just described, where you're flow. completely absorbed mm-hmm. in something, but you're not, and you're not overly stressed about it. You're not thinking about yourself or how others will evaluate it. You're just thinking about the thing that you're doing. And there's a lot of research showing that if you like Teresa Amabila's research for creativity, but also research on on learning new things, that that state of mind is the ideal state for learning new things. Which you get taken out of very quickly when you're in a class that only goes for 45 minutes. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, think school in theory is a place where we're supposed to be learning new things, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of it, right? So, uh, and yet, Mm. and all the research says Mm. that learning new things should be done where you're not evaluated. And yet you're being evaluated all the time. It's really um, amazing to really dive a bit deeper on these levels of things that people might think are a bit trivial to just get a really in-depth perspective of how important they are. Can you talk to us about giving children unlimited access to screens and food and no bedtime? They were the most common questions. Yeah, so first of all, let me say that sort of among unschoolers, there are different philosophies. So I mean, I think that there are different ways of dealing with food and different ways of bedtime. You want to respect the child's wishes. You, you want to, wherever possible, bring the child into a discussion about it. You know, ideally, you want to have some influence. You want your child to develop healthy eating habits, and you want, to de- you want your child to develop healthy sleeping habits. You also want your child to be a member of the family. And if you've got a child who, let's say, spends all day day sleeping and all night playing video games, <laughs> child is mm. not being a member of the family. Mm. And, you know, I can understand uh, that uh, adults, the parents would be concerned mm. about that. I think it's reasonable to, to set as a family certain guidelines and parameters ideally everybody's involved in that discussion. You come to some kind of an agreement and you say, okay, well, let's try this out. I think the key is always to the degree possible don't lay down the law, but rather have a discussion. If children are more reasonable than we think they are, and if there's a reason for what we think they should be doing, we should be able to explain that reason in a way that makes sense to them. And we should be able to present Mm -hmm. them with evidence and logic and not with just because I said so. Another question that we got thrown by the audience and one I'm really interested in learning more about is there are currently no Sudbury schools in Australia. Our education department don't allow the flexibility of, say, charter schools as America does. How can schools in Australia explore the grey areas within our regulations and laws to try and at least follow the philosophy and part of self-directed education, despite, you know, the binds that we have (laughs) of our very strict yes, educational yeah. um, I pro- I, I'm sure I don't have a really satisfactory answer to that, but e- even in the United States, there are no, uh, there, there's no public support. There's no public financial support for any kind of self-directed education. So a Sudbury school cannot get government money. Mm. There cannot, charter schools are nothing like Sudbury schools. Um, they're just variations of the typical school. Mm. I think the primary difference in the United States comes from the fact that w- we permit homeschooling and we permit, and we don't, don't regulate homeschooling. So because although different states Mm. within the United States have different rules about it, there's no state 
that in any real way regulates homeschooling. So that means that every family has the opportunity to register their child as homeschooled, but then not give the child a curriculum. And then you can, and then simply allow the child to follow mm -hmm. their own interests. As a result of the, uh, of the ready availability of homeschooling and the flexibility about it, there are a lot of homeschoolers in the United States, a growing number. There are something now like 4% of school-aged children in the United States are being homeschooled. And a growing number of them are being homeschooled wow. without a formal curriculum. Mm. That continues to grow. And as the growth occurs, then people who are doing it, there, there, since there are many people, especially in cities, but even in small towns often, there are enough people doing it that they get to know one another and they form some kind of a learning center that could be like a Sudbury school. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't have to be registered as a school if everybody's a homeschooler. So there are more and more of these learning centers that are basically places where kids can get together and learn from one another and play and explore. And there can be, an, there can be adults that if children want to learn something from adults, mm. they can, they, there are adults available. So that's happening more and more. The yeah. kinds of schools like Sudbury Valley, um, those are re those are certified as schools, and that requires it depends on the state. But in most states, but not all states in the United States, it's possible to get such a school mm -hmm. certified. Uh, although it's not always easy, you have mm -hmm. to convince either the state or the local school board, depending on the state, that this is a legitimate school. And there's always the chance that they would close it down. So. Uh, I think what people often don't realize is that real self-directed mm -hmm. education requires that the, that there not be a that the children not be tested. And the reason I say that is because as soon mm -hmm. as you've got a test and especially if that test is taken at all seriously. I mean, I suppose you could say if the children are tested but nobody cares about the test results. <laughs> if the child doesn't care and the family doesn't care and the state doesn't care, but you're just doing the test because you've got a rule that you have to do the test, I suppose mm. then it wouldn't be a problem. But it, even then it could be a problem because as soon as you have a test, then the family, the child themselves feel like, well, I've got to study for the test. Mm. And now since you're studying for the test, you're not really engaged in self-directed education anymore. You're engaged in trying to learn the stuff that the testers have decided you need to learn. And if you're going mm. to a regular school, you're supposed to be able to read by mm. a certain age, right? You're supposed to be able to read at age six mm -hmm. or seven. But one of the things that we've discovered in self-directed education is many children learn to read by that age. Maybe the majority of children do. But because they're learning on their own and because the whole idea of self-directed education is if you learn something on your own, you will love it. In a, long, in a longer mm -hmm. way. It'll be more meaningful to you. You're not likely to burn out about it. Therefore, if you pressure the child to learn to read at age six so that they can pass the reading test <laughs> for that age, you have really violated a basic assumption of self-directed education. What we find, just to take reading as an example, is that some children don't learn to read until they're eight, nine, mm -hmm. 10, even 14. Now, mm -hmm. some people might look at that as 
and aghast. I mean, if you were in regular school and couldn't read by age 14, you'd be in serious trouble. But what we find with self-directed education is many children just don't see a need to read. <laughs> They're learning mm -hmm. all kinds of interesting things. And then at some point, you can't grow up in a literate society without recognizing at some point that reading is valuable to do what you want to do. And so for, for a few children, that comes rather late. Very few is it as late as 14, but for some it is. It's not uncommon for it to be as late as eight or nine. If, so if you do a test mm -hmm. of, of kids in self-directed education and you report the results, oh my goodness, the reading scores, the average mm -hmm. reading score was so low, all that means is that in the people that you're testing, many of them haven't developed an interest in reading yet, so they haven't learned to read. Yeah. What I've done some so, somewhat informal research on reading, and what I what I've found from that research is that children can learn to read at any age. There's no critical learn. Even adults can learn to read at any age who've never learned to read. There's no critical age yeah. for learning it. There's no evidence that you can learn it better or faster when you're young than when you're older. If anything, you can probably learn it faster when you're older than when you're younger. Many families who engage in self-directed education re report that they had one child who learned to read really early, maybe at age three or four or five, and another who didn't learn to read until 10. And now they're both teenagers, and you wouldn't know which one was the early reader. You know, they're both into reading. <laughs> I've also observed is that most people in self-directed education, as they become older, are do a lot of reading. They love to read. They read a lot. <laughs> this is part of how they self-direct. This is how they learn. This is how they learn. And they, because they've never been forced to read, reading is not a negative thing to them. It's a completely positive thing to them. They don't have negative connotations about reading. And the same is true for other realms, you know, because they've never been forced to do mathematics that they didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. They're not afraid of mathematics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and they, because whatever math they learn, they learn because it's useful to them or because it's fun to them. They have very positive feelings about mathematics, yeah, whereas the fun. great majority of schooled people in our society, there's actually evidence on this, is, are, are math phobic. You know, there's the primary thing that people learn in math classes is, I hate math, you know, so that's uh, yep, partly because of the way it's taught, but <laughs> partly because it's irrelevant, the because the math that's being taught is irrelevant to life, it's being taught in a way that's yeah. irrelevant to life, and because it's being taught to people who don't who aren't eager to learn it. The kind of math that, that self-directed learners learn is math that's very related mm -hmm. to their activities. We've got a couple of really quick short answer rapid fire questions. Are you okay if we just finish off with those? I'll, I'll try for short answer. I'm not yeah. good at short <laughs> Neither answer. Neither are we. We can talk all night. <laughs> What's your favorite book currently and why? Uh, let me give answers that are somewhat relevant to our topic. So I would, I would say that my favorite book related to children's learning and education is John Holt's book, uh, How Children Learn. It's an eye-opening book. It's a very um, uh, it was written in the in the early 1970s. Holt was really a pioneer in self-directed education, and I, I read that recently for the second time because I was asked to review a, a new edition of it, and I I was really reminded at um, how insightful Holt was, and how Holt was um, somebody who didn't have his own children, and maybe because mm -hmm. he didn't have his own children, he took a lot of interest 
in other people's children and children in his, in the classes he taught, but also children of relatives of his. And he was very respectful to children. And because he was respectful to children, he could mm. engage in conversations with them mm. and learn a lot about their ways of thinking and how they learned. And that really led to insights that go way beyond the insights that I think you can find from people who are more systematic researchers. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was kind of this was kind of observational research. In terms of fiction, I, I have to say, mm. again, in terms of understanding children, mm. nobody beats Mark Twain. <laughs> so I would, I would put um, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn as the best <laughs> book about children ever. <laughs> so again, yeah. because he respected children and because Huck Finn is such a self-directed yeah. <laughs> person. <laughs> that, uh, so let me leave it at that as my answer to the favorite <laughs> book. Do you wish someone had told you when you became a new parent? Probably if somebody had said something to me, and it's not that I was totally ignorant of this idea, but even somebody emphasizing the fact is somebody has said, you know, this child that you're going to have is not your product. You're not creating this child. <laughs> this child is not you. This child is mm. not even a combination of you and and your and the mom. <laughs> this is a whole new person. Yes. And your job as a dad has nothing to do with shaping this person. It has to do with who this person becomes. Your job is just to try to understand this person. Welcome this person into your home. Try to understand who this person is. In whatever ways you can, help the person be who they want to be. <laughs> help the person be who they are. Help the person find who they are. Oh, I, I think that's, mm. no matter how much parents believe that mm -hmm. they're responsible for who their child becomes, they have very, very little control over that. The best thing you can do is to be a model of a good adult mm -hmm. so your child has mm -hmm. an example of a moral person. You know, I think that you should work on, if somebody had said, work on shaping yourself into the best person you can be rather than trying to shape your child into the best person your mm -hmm. child can be. You have a lot more control over yourself than over your child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. All right, number three is if you're having a rough day, what's your favorite place for you to or your family to go and reset and reconnect? For me, getting outdoors and mm -hmm. doing something mm -hmm. outdoors. I actually try, whether or not I've had a rough day, I try to get outdoors every day uh, for at least an hour, um, engage in activities that are vigorous. And, you know, it could be mm. cross-country skiing in the winter or swimming or gardening or chopping wood or running <laughs> when my leg isn't hurting too much. <laughs> or by, I do a lot of bicycling. All of these things are, a lot of these things that I do mm. are kind of repetitive and conducive to meditation while at the same time, yeah. good exercise. And I find that they free my mind from whatever my mind has been concerned about. And that also oftentimes, because my mind is free, whatever was the problem that was bothering me, first of all, seems less important. But secondly, oftentimes a solution or at least a path mm. to a solution just pops into my head without without my thinking about it. I think the unconscious mind is still mm. working on that problem. 
And because you're less focused on it with your conscious mind, your unconscious mind can bring more to bear on it that's less directly related to it, but is still relevant to it. I've actually, there's actually research about this, but it fits very much with my own experience that getting away from a problem, engaging in some kind of activity that takes my mind away from it, takes my conscious mind away from it, but is also doesn't put my conscious mind too mm-hmm. actively on something else. It sort of frees my mm-hmm. mind because I'm engaged in this kind of regular rhythmic activity, which is, you know, some people do this with yoga or with meditation or so on. For me, I do it with rhythmic, mm-hmm. physical, outdoor activity that is that is. Well, I think freeing. that you've probably answered our fourth question, which is creating freedom or some self care in your day or life. How do you how do you do that? But I think you've sort of answered that uh, in the in the previous question. Yeah. I think I think I do throughout throughout my entire adult life. Certainly, I always make room mm. for outdoor play, <laughs> and uh, and I also the other thing I do that taking an approach of trying trying to recognize what are your physical limitations, and instead of accepting those physical limitations, working on overcoming them, is uh, something that I have always taken to heart. <laughs> We could honestly talk to you all day for a year (laughs) and still only really get a glimpse into your incredible mind. So we just want to thank you for taking the time out of your evening. And if we just inspire one family to increase their unadulterated play within their children's week, then I think we've done a great thing here. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts for spending this time with us today. You're very welcome. And thank you for inviting me and thank you for what you're doing. Before we go, we've got a huge favour to ask. Peter has been so generous in coming on the show as our very first guest and we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast so that more parents can learn about how children learn and the importance of play. Or you could just take a screenshot of the podcast artwork and post it to Instagram or Facebook pages. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Raising Wildlings. For more tips on alternative education, parenting and rewilding your family, Add us on your socials and sign up to our mailing list at wildlingsforestschool.com. And be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. Until next time, stay wild.